Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is America's role in the world. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Post-War Order's Decline, The State of the World from the End of World War II to the Present. It was recorded on October 22, 2018. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I, um, I actually didn't come to bury the, the post-war order, but to initially praise it. And by that euphemism, we're talking about the idea of containment. Remember that at the end of World War II, actually earlier during the Yalta Treaty of February, Yalta Conference of February 1945 and the Potsdam Conference of July, we, there were some bitter truths that we, the Allies, had to absorb. Number one, our partnership with the Soviet Union had been successful in the sense that they had destroyed three-quarters of all the Wehrmacht's power. Three, 75% of German soldiers in World War II were killed by the Soviet Red Army. That was a good thing for us. Uh, second, that it was clear by early July that the Soviet Union was a Soviet Union and it was not going to abide by these uh, conference dictates. The conference themselves were, uh, they were pro problematic, and then soon after, in the period between Yalta and Potsdam, they started to violate these agreements. And uh, third, we realized that uh, maybe World War I, but certainly World War II, probably broke out because the United States uh, practiced an isolationism that was increasingly unrealistic in a interconnected world along with British and French appeasement, and that wasn't going to happen again. Number four, we realized that the world as we knew it in 1945 was demolished. There wasn't a Chinese power yet. There were not the Asian tigers. Soviet Union was destroyed. Most of Western Europe had been occupied and looted by the Germans. The two powerhouses, Japan and Germany, uh, were really non-existent as industrial powers, and Britain was in this strange cycle of socialization and nationalization. It was up to the United States then to lead the world both militarily and economically. And so that was sort of the, the premise of containment, and to sum it all up is that we were so wealthy and so magnanimous and so engaged that we could assume a hit we could spend at various times over the next 45 years up to 12% of GDP in peacetime to contain the Soviet Union. We would go nuclear missile to nuclear missile against them. We would have this huge uh, military, over 700 bases. We would run up enormous trade deficits. We would enter in asymmetrical agreements. We would do what it takes to contain this monstrous ideology, predicated on the idea that we had a really bad propaganda after the war was over we were stuck with saying that it, Italians and Japanese and Germans are not any longer Nazis or militarists or fascists. They're our allies, and we're going to democratize them. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union said, look at those capitalist running dogs. They're on the side of the axis. While we're continuing the liberation spirit of World War II in Southeast Asia, in Burma, in China. So it was a very difficult time. And as you know, there were ups and downs, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Cuban Missile Crisis, but by 1989, that 45-year-old post-war 
order and the idea of containment had proved a smashing success. And over the next decade, there was a sense of euphoria. And let's just go back and remember what happened between 89 and let's say 2001. The Berlin Wall fell abruptly in 1989 and with it, the Soviet Union a few months later for all practical purposes. Boris Yeltsin, we thought, was going to be a democratic force for change in Russia. The Soviet Empire was broken up and it went from a population of over 240 down to about 140. It was no longer going to be an existential threat. Remember Tiananmen Square, 1989? It looked like that forces of democracy were also working, although that was put down. We assumed there would be many Tiananmen Squares to come. That was a, a, an omen that the post-war order had succeeded and the institutions were still working and they were ensuring a consensual future for everybody. Along with it, we had the Maastricht Treaty, European Union, 1993. Remember, there was going to be no national borders anymore, the logical culmination of this post-war order. There was going to be a common currency. There was going to be a utopianism. Wouldn't need any hard power or sacrifice for military affairs. We had a new phrase that was coined, soft power. The United Nations would be re-energized, International Criminal Court, uh, UNICEF, this would be in sort of a, an overbody after the end of the uh, Cold War. I think you remember in 1990, uh, on the eve of the first Gulf War, George W. Bush, on that ill-omened date of <laughs> September 11th, 1990, said that we were now in a new world order, and we had the largest coalition, really, in history uh, that joined us in the first Gulf War. Francis Fukuyama wrote his quite influential history, a, a, recap, a recapitulation of an earlier article. Remember in 1992, it came out, the end of history, where we were on, had been on a logical trajectory, as Hegel had pointed out, where the only system that was viable for most people was consumer capitalist consensual government, and we had reached it. And at the end of history, there wouldn't be many issues left. And it seemed like he was right. If you look at this new EU, you look at the reforming Russia, China was soon to follow. We had a new policy with China. We would run up trade deficits, whatever it took, because we understood at the end of history that the greater affluence the Chinese had, the more likely they were to be liberal-minded. The more they came to the United States, the more they would see this wonderful system, uh, and everything would be quite well. Uh, we had intervened, remember, in 1998 uh, in Serbia, even though it was mostly a U.S. operation. We called it 98-99. We called it a NATO enterprise, first time NATO had been used within Europe. So everything looked like the post-war order and its institutions would persist, although there wouldn't be a common enemy. It would sort of lord over a new era. And remember, NATO increased from its original 12 members to 26, 27. It was almost as if people that were having uh, cappuccino in Brussels, if anybody invaded Lithuania, they would get their uh, tank and go over there because everybody was on the same democratic page. But human nature doesn't change. Just because the Soviet Union is dissolved, uh, it doesn't mean that evil in the world uh, is gone. And so what happened in the next decade first of all, was this shock on 9-11-2001 where we found out there was something called radical Islam and it was very potent and it had done what the Germans and the Japanese 
and the Italians and the Soviet Union and Mao Zedong had never done. It had destroyed uh, about five acres in Manhattan and killed 3,000 uh, Americans in the heart of the financial, cultural capital of the United States. That was followed by uh, a retaliatory effort in Afghanistan and one in Iraq, and we learned from the, whatever your feelings were about the Iraq war, we learned very quickly that our NATO allies and this new European Union were not necessarily on board with us. In fact, if you remember the comments of Mr. Villapon, the the UN ambassador, the foreign minister of France, you saw a, a great depth of antipathy for the United States role. And we couldn't quite figure out, we won the Cold War, everything is wonderful, why don't you join us to, to destroy this common threat that we didn't quite extinguish in, in 91, and it didn't happen. In addition, we had the 2008 financial collapse that really questioned the stability, the security, the durability of this uh, globalized trade, free trade, um, free market capitalism. We thought that this was going to enrich everybody. That was the promise of globalization that really took off after the fall of the, uh, of the Berlin Wall. And so there were certain indications that uh, things were not going quite as well, even though we had the same institutions. And then we started looking at these institutions after the end of the Cold War and after this honeymoon between 89 and say 2001 were over, and we started to learn certain things, and that was the Soviet Union may be gone, but Russia is still Russia. And in 2014, remember, they absorbed Crimea and eastern Ukraine. They engaged in cyber warfare against the United States, and although we had increased NATO and should be much stronger as deterrence to Mr. Putin, we kind of learned that when everybody's in NATO, nobody's in NATO. When you have 26 countries, people in Amsterdam are not necessarily willing to die for the security of Lithuania or Albania or Bulgaria. And then we understood something that, while it was a wonderful thing that Germany had been reunified, we had this dark thought that the original agenda of NATO, if we remember Lord Ismay said, Russia out, the United States in, and Germany down. Well, they most certainly weren't down anymore. They had a $65 billion surplus with the United States, and they ran asymmetrical tariffs with the United States, and they had the largest account surplus in the world, larger than China's, when you count everything from finance uh, to trade. And uh, they weren't very nice to the United States. If you look at the recent Pew poll of all countries in Europe, Germany has the highest anti-Americanism. It borders from between 48 and 52% of Germans have an unfavorable opinion. A lot of that's due to Trump, but even under Obama, especially after that uh, incident that we were allegedly spying on German uh, people during the Obama administration, it was still the highest, not as high as it is now, but it was still the highest level of antipathy for the United States. Another thing about Germany that didn't quite make sense in um, this euphoric period was that um, of all the 26 NATO countries, it was almost last at spending about 1.3, 1.4 GDP. But more importantly, countries, when they looked at Germany not meeting their 2% GDP obligations, then they said, well, if Germany has the largest account surplus in the world, and it's running a $65 billion surplus in trade with the United States, and it's 
engaging in lucrative uh, gas and oil contracts with the, Soviet, uh, the former Soviet Union, and it's not made, making its NATO obligations, then why should we do it? And so most of the countries of NATO never really did meet their obligations. If we looked at the southern border, in this euphoric period, we had passed the North, uh, the, uh, North American Free Trade Association Accord, and uh, it looked like it was unimpeachable, it was wonderful, the GDP increased in Mexico, it increased in the United States, and then we suddenly understood that, wait a minute, a level of anti-Americanism is very high in Mexico. They're running a larger trade uh, deficit from our terms, then is Germany, $71 billion. But more importantly, they're running a $30 billion surplus as far as remittances go. And unfortunately, they, as a, as a policy, are sending people from southern Mexico to the United States, whether it was because they feel it's a safety valve to mitigate social tensions, whether they have, it's an irritant of paying us back, maybe psychologically, for our own aggression in the 19th century, but most importantly, it, was a, it had become the second and now the first source of foreign revenue for the hard dollars for the Mexican government. And irony was that many of the people who were in the United States illegally and sending back that $30 billion were on some, port of, some sort of state assistance. It's very clear to me when I go in my hometown where there's a large uh, number of people here that are undocumented that people will go into the Western Union office and send two or three hundred dollars back per week to Mexico, and yet they have, they're, they're part of the American social safety net. So that was an asymmetrical situation in NAFTA. We didn't think that was going to happen. We thought that NAFTA, like all of the other uh, international accords, would so enrich Mexico as it would enrich China that they would, of course, be A, favorable to the United States in all aspects, and B, that they would be on the same page politically, economically, and culturally. That's the promise of globalization. I mentioned Russia, but Russia was going back to the 19th century, not to the 21st century. We looked at China, there was not another Tiananmen Square, but a very strange thing happened. The more that we had three, 400,000 Chinese nationals in the United States, the more that they ran up. Today they run up a $376 billion trade surplus with the United States. I think most of you were all here free traders, but we didn't quite know how to define free trade with China when they were systematically engaging in patent infringement, copyright abuse, dumping, and uh, asymmetrical accords in which American companies might have to surrender some of their technological know-how as a price of doing business in China. And they ran the second highest uh, account surplus in the world. That wasn't supposed to happen. The more they got to know the world, the more affluent they got, we thought, after Tiananmen Square, they would naturally liberalize, and they would become sort of like an extension, uh, another source of power, not unlike the United States or the EU. So when we took a deep breath, and we looked at certain things of the post-war order, we looked at NATO, and we said, it's expanded, the common thread is gone, but it didn't really do much about uh, Vladimir Putin, and should he be more aggressive, we doubt that other than the United States, maybe in Britain and one or two other allies, it's going to be uh, successful in deterring Putin. And we have members of NATO who are not really democratic and they're not really Western. And we're, I'm talking about the neo-Ottoman uh, emergence in Turkey, 
when we looked at NAFTA, we said these, these free trade agreements are pretty important, but they seem to come at the expense of the United States. When we looked at um, uh, China, Russia, the EU, we looked at the EU especially in this context, and we said, wait a minute, not only is Germany sort of anti-American in some sense, and it's not fair in its trade, but it's, it's sort of trisected the EU. In other words, that the EU we thought was going to be the paradigm of the future, but instead this, the Mediterranean uh, EU members, especially Italy, Spain, uh, and Greece, are at odds with the Deutsche Bank. For whatever reason, who's ever culpable, we don't really want to adjudicate that, but there's no way in the world they're going to pay back the money that was so liberally loaned to them. I, I, I go to Athens almost every year, and Athens had the highest number of Mercedes per capita of any European city. And there was no way that people were going to pay that back, and the German banks and companies that sold them those cars knew that. And yet, the financial restrictions put on the Athenian I mean, economy and the Greek economy to pay that back was very unrealistic. What I'm getting at is that the EU was now rent and torn by dissension from the South, but also from the East with illegal immigration. Germany, for a variety of reasons, decided to let people in that were going to be very hard to assimilate, especially when you have young males from the war-torn Middle East and Muslims. It's going to be a very hard task to assimilate them in a country that has no tradition of the melting pot like we do. And yet they were going to force that doctrine on Austria, on, on Poland, on Hungary, on the Czech Republic, on Romania. So they split the, the EU, not just north and south, but east and west. They split it from us over the question of NATO and trade, and they split it with the United Kingdom on issues of how to get out of the EU and made it very difficult for Brexit to be enacted. You can see what I'm suggesting, that the world is the world. Human nature is unchanged. All that uh, didn't change was our institutions. The UN was still there. NAFTA was still there. Uh, NATO was still there, and this overarching principle that the United States was so wealthy and so powerful that it was willing to engage in these asymmetrical agreements and trade uh, accords because we could do it, we'd always done it. And somebody then looked at the United States and they said, you know, globalization in this international system did not affect America the same. If you drive through Bakersfield, it's not quite the same as Menlo Park. If you go to Youngstown, Ohio, it doesn't look like Manhattan. If you go uh, into parts of uh, Iowa or you go into um, you know, rural Kansas, it doesn't quite seem uh, that globalization was so, so good or so effective. It was almost as if we were saying, under this new global reality, the old institutions had not met their obligations, at least that the obligations were to be defined to protect the American worker and citizen. And so it was almost as if anybody who had muscular labor, whose, whose job could be Xeroxed or outsourced to someone else, and that meant industrial production, manufacturing, some types of agriculture, then they were expendable. And people who didn't, people in finance, people like myself in the university and intellectual property, we not only were not ex we were essential, but we've thrived as never before. When you wrote a column and you had an audience of 200 million Americans, suddenly you could have a billion people online reading you. So 
So it enhanced a lot of people who tended to focus in the blue states corridors. And nobody quite saw this asymmetry, this abnormality that was developing all through uh, the 21st century. And so a lot of people said to themselves, well, you're doing well by globalization, and NAFTA is uh, irreplaceable for you, and NATO, of course, we all appreciate it, but it's, it's not really doing what we think it should do, and we don't have confidence in the UN, and we're not sure that China is liberalizing, and Russia seems pretty aggressive, and the EU's values are very different than our own, and I'm not doing very well, and I want an end to it. And that's pretty much the situation culturally, politically, economically that we saw in 2016. The miracle is not that Donald Trump demagogued these issues or capitalized on them that, that was or astutely saw how they would translate into the electoral college arithmetic. The mystery is that why nobody else did. And so while he was barnstorming the Midwest, Hillary Clinton was in Georgia and Arizona trying to run up a landslide mag, uh, mandate, suggesting that if you even question NATO, if you question NAFTA, if you question the EU, you were, some you were some type of heretic. Meanwhile, he kept at it, often fibbing, exaggerating, as is his art of the deal method. But nevertheless, he hit on something. And here we are today where uh, if you're going to change those institutions from their post-war uh, post and Cold War embryo and make them updated, you have to change them for a, a world that did not pan out as we said it would in 89 to 2001. That decade was sort of like the promise of the five good emperors. What Edward Gibbons said, the reign of Nura and Trajan and Hadrian and Marcus Antonius and Marcus Aurelius was going to be the, it was the nicest era of mankind when there was no war, no rivalry and productivity and prosperity. That didn't happen as we were told. The institutions stayed the same. The world changed despite them. And to save those institutions, I don't know what other methods you had because it was not going to be adjudicated by asking the Germans to please pay 2% and set a model so others would please, please pay their 2% promises of GDP. It took somebody, an anti-hero or somebody to come in and rail and scream about what was the use of NATO anymore. I don't know how you get the Chinese to please, please, please be fair on trade and please not steal so much of our technology unless you you scream and yell at them and say, we're going to put tariffs and we don't believe in uh, that free trade exists with you. I don't know how you deal with the EU when the chief country and the most powerful country has a negative opinion of you, asymmetrical tariffs, and uh, is not meeting their NATO, but to be pretty tough and say, you're going to have to put a tariff on a BMW or an Audi. And by the way, we thought that was outrageous. I just got back from rural Michigan where American auto industry is pretty good. People love that idea. And uh, they love the idea that people in California might have to pay more for their BMWs and Audis. And they have other, yeah. And so let me just finish by suggesting to you that what we think is abnormal, crude, over the top, a heresy, we shouldn't dare ever mention these things, uh, is an exasperation. It's a cry of the heart of people who didn't think that the necessarily post-war order was serving their economic or political needs as it had so successfully in the past. And whereas the world uh, 
changed, our institutions, especially our international institutions, had not. And the central premise of them, that the United States could pay any price, meet any challenge for world harmony and prosperity, essentially it applied to people in the coast, but it no longer applied to people in between. And they shouted that out in 2016. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.